Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Autism Spectrum Therapies and the Learn AST Provider Network. Now, here is your host, Rob Howe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, Executive Vice President at Learn Behavioral, an ABA provider providing services to kids with autism and other developmental disabilities all across the country. Um, really excited about today's show. Joined by our frequent guest, our, our good friend, Dr. Hannah Rue. Hannah, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me again. So, you know, I wanted to kind of skip my normal intro and, you know, topic of the day that I like to kind of start off all of our shows with and kind of really start with you because there was a pretty significant uh, loss in the field of of ABA and autism um, this week. Uh, Tristram Smith passed away, and I think to a lot of our listeners, that's probably a name they're not familiar with. It's it's a name that I feel like I'm only somewhat familiar with. obviously a huge impactful name when we think about the research of ABA. Like why, why is this a big law for us? You know, fill, fill everyone in on who he was and, and just, and why so many people are mourning right now for his loss. Yeah. I mean, incredible loss for the field of autism and applied behavior analysis. Um, Dr. Smith was when he passed, um, just days ago, was a professor at the University of Rochester, but he had previously been, um, started out really at UCLA with Dr. Lovas and was really part of that seminal work um, in the late 80s and the 1990s. So he was part of the of the research that really got us to where we are today. So um, not only did he participate, you know, with those kids who were in the the initial 1987 study, the replication Mm -hmm. in 1993, and, you know, really had his hand in those replication sites and demonstrated the impact that applied behavior analysis intensive ABA can have on young children with autism. Um, But then he also um, stretched into, um, you know, public policy and evidence-based practice. Um, Not only that, but, um, you know, he was a professor and he worked at um, UCLA and um, Washington State University. So he's actually touched a number of, um, you know, graduate students and professionals who are practicing uh, across the, across the United States, Drake University as well, I I forgot. But um, so I think his impact is felt directly by all of the researchers and clinicians that he's trained, and then by the rest of us, by all of the work um, that we've had to read and replicate in our clinical practice. And we've used his research to support um, our use of uh, applied behavior analysis um, in, in many different ways. So I think he's had an impact in, in research, in practice, and in public policy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those names I know for me. You know, I, I think I've I've seen him speak once, maybe twice. Um, but for me, it's it's the name, um, and this is not to diminish anything that uh, that Dr. Lovas did, but I, I feel like it's it's Tristan Smith's name that I see coming up more and more in in my work to say, here's the research to support what I'm recommending right now. It, it really sets from my perspective, kind of feels like that evolution of the the 
that initial work by Dr. Lovas that, you know, has become the foundation of so much of what we do. And in the progress reports we've written to say, you know, here's the research to support this recommendation I'm making. And, and right at the top is, uh, is Trisha Smith. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in Lovas having passed away some, some years back, I think that um, Dr. Smith continued um, to, you know, forge this path in terms of, like I said, public policy, which is where we see ourselves now, you know, in the new yeah. realm of healthcare and applied behavior analysis. I think that's where he's having a huge impact. So to have someone who was there at the very start of this and part of that, you know, initial work and carry it through to present day 2018, um, mm-hmm. you know, really speaks to, you know, his impact on, like I said, so many different people, but, um, you know, to be a contemporary and to still be practicing and, and you know, uh, he'd really been through every component of um, applied behavior analysis for individuals with autism in terms of, you know, watching it grow and, um, you know, nationally and internationally because, you know, people recognize yeah. his work around the world now. Well, I mean, it's it's just a really sad loss for all of us. I know, you know, we, he was literally just speaking at a conference that I know a lot of our, our colleagues and coworkers were just at and, you know, mm-hmm. thoughts and prayers to everyone and our condolences to everyone. I know it's a, it's a personal, it's a professional loss to so many people out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, I wanted to kind of stick with, with, with talking about Tristan, I wanted to kind of think and, and talk a little bit more about kind of this concept of like early intervention and, and, and the evolution of it. Cause you know, this is someone who's at the forefront of, of what started everything as well as continuing to, to push it forward in all the ways you described kind of felt like a good topic for us today. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about so many aspects of early intervention in our, in our previous shows, but you know, one area that we haven't gotten into that I thought would be really great for our listeners and, and a nice conversation for us is just locations. You know, you, you think about, mm-hmm. uh, you think about service delivery, and, and I know one of the big topics that I face on a kind of public policy, you know, advocacy front, whether it be with uh, legislative or even uh, different payers, is this idea of like where where can services take place? And sometimes I think we get kind of hung up in like the what will someone pay for rather than what should it be, and let's argue for that. And it's it's a fine line that every clinician, every parent, everyone in the community has to kind of balance out all the time. Um, but, you know, if we think about this, this young child, a three-year-old, four-year-old just getting diagnosed, ideally a two-year-old, I mean, where – You've got so many different options out there. You know, what does the research tell us? Is there anything out there to say this is the ideal environment to be in? You know, what's pretty amazing is you think about, like, 1970s and 1980s and, you know, when this initial work started popping up, a lot of it focused on Mm – um, you know, discrete trial training, which is a fantastic technique, evidence-based within the you know yeah. realm of applied behavior analytic strategies that we use. And a lot of that takes place in a sterile environment, tabletop or whatnot. And that was really what people perceived ABA to be when, in fact, it's, you know, as you know, so much more than that. And, you know, what we started to see as we became more contemporary and practices evolved is that, you know, although discrete trial training is an important component to many programs, 
um, you know, taking on that more naturalistic teaching style and really making use of the child's environment to teach them. Um, we've seen decades of research support that. So we're, we're way beyond, you know, a university-based center program for kids with autism. We now see mm -hmm. work where um, parents as therapists in the home environment, we see uh, peers doing uh, peer training with individuals in the classroom environment. Uh, we see kids in daycare, in community settings, you know, um, at recess and in the park and things of that nature. And, um, and I think that's, that's where we're at. One of the things that, you know, I love where we work at AST is, you know, we talk about meeting the kids and the families where the need's at. So for as much as we talk about programs being individualized, I think the learning environment is part of that individualization. So if we have a kid mm -hmm. whose family requires them to be in a daycare setting, then we need to bring that learning environment to the daycare setting. Um, you mm -hmm. know, if they're in the school setting, if they're at the home setting in the evening, we need to be equipped um, to provide that there. And, you know, if you think about it, neurotypical kids go to daycare, they go to school, they're at home, and neurotypical children learn from their environment. You know, they're constantly taking in what's going around mm -hmm. in terms of language and things being modeled for them. Our kids with autism don't do that. We have to be very explicit about it. But we should take those same opportunities in the different environments um, to teach them so that, that, you know, that we have these naturally occurring consequences. So. You know, I think what the to simply answer your question, I think what research has demonstrated to us is there really is no one specific environment in which a child can learn and applied behavior and yeah. interventions can be effective. So, you know, you think about that, like I, I feel like I talk to all, all these different BCBAs and talk to a lot of different folks in the field. It's like, so what do I do with that? Like, I think that becomes a struggle for everyone is, um, you know, I just talked to a young BCBA, I think two days ago, who was stuck in this position of, I know this kid needs 30 hours a week. And all of the assessment tools clearly said 30 hours a week is the right number for this kid. And this kid has this with us and these other interventions they're going to get is going to have this large comprehensive plan. And then that conversation turned into though, but where should those 30 hours a week take place? Cause that was, that was the parents question. Hey, we, we're seeing this work, but it's time to go to preschool. Should we do ABA in the preschool? Should we do ABA in your clinic? Should we do ABA in the home? What's that right balance? Are, are there any guidelines yet to help these these clinicians and these families start to kind of make sense of, hey, technically there's you know, like you said, AST we're we're open from eight to eight. That's a twelve hour block of time. Um, a thirty hour week program on on average is six hours a day. Like, how do we stack that? What is there any guidelines for when the best time are to schedule that six hours a day for that thirty hour rec? You know, I've seen that pop up in some of the, in some of the, you know, um, discussions around, you know, professionals. We do have the the BACB who's provided guidelines around, mm -hmm. you know, recommended dosage in terms of hours and supervision and things like that. But in terms of environment, yeah. I don't know if we have any straightforward guidelines out there. But I would say that 
um, any behavior mm-hmm. analyst engaging in evidence-based practice, you know, where we consider research and clinical um, clinical knowledge as well as uh, family values and preferences, I think this is where the family unit really comes into play because that's where we have yeah. to talk to the family about, you know, what does your family look like? Are you, are you two working parents, one working parent? Um, are you making use of daycare? Um, you know, do we, do you want to start, you know, preschool? You know, what are your, you know, short-term and long-term goals and how can mm-hmm. we um, make that work in terms of providing therapy? So, um, and, and we see all sorts of combinations. So, you know, we have some kids that do preschool for short periods during the day and then they, come, they you know, take a short break, maybe nap time. They come home in the afternoon and then we provide those sessions. So I think it really is about working. And then, we, you know, we have some families that say, you know, I'm going to hold off on preschool until we develop um, a certain level of skill or something. Maybe it's toilet training or something of that that nature uh, that we want to achieve before we send them off to preschool. So I think that's working really closely with the family about what their family life looks like, what's important to them, and then what the, you know, what the ultimate goals are for this child. Um, And I think right now that's, you know, that's what clinicians need to rely on. And, you know, in terms of being a board certified behavior analyst, we are ethically obligated to be advocating for, you know, the right to effective treatment in that regard. So, um, you know, taking that into account, I think, is important as well. It's funny you talk about um, that that preschool transition because that that's literally the the point where this parent and this young BCBA we're we're at is um, is this preschool setting is he appropriate for this preschool setting? Do we need to hold back? Could you be there with him? And it was that that balance of. Where do we go next? We've made so much progress here. What is the right way to move forward and take those next steps? Um, it, that seems to be kind of the big critical question that I've been getting is, and, as well as what are the characteristics I'm looking for in the environment? Like I feel like one mm-hmm. of the things that when I go around the community is um, – Sometimes I find people recommending, well, we have a a 30-hour-a-week center-based program, and that's what you're signing up for, and that's what you're doing, um, without even observing, well, what does your school look like or what does your home look like? Um, And it it seems to be like, you know, what are those – what are the characteristics that make a good place a good learning environment seem to be kind of a the step I see missing or or people um, taking a longer time to develop in their toolbox? Mm-hmm. No, I think, uh, you know, I think that's something to, you know, spend some time considering. And certainly, like you said, it takes some time to actually visit these different environments and see if they match up with your goals and objectives and your assessment results. So, you know, I spent a lot of my younger days shadowing kids in different, you know, school environments and daycare and, and preschool environments. And the one thing that we always look for is, you know, does this child have the prerequisite skills, you know, in terms of some basic communication skills and receptively understanding some um, instructions so that, you know, they are able to sit for a developmentally appropriate amount of time, you know, like a story time or a circle yeah. time, um, you know, are they toilet trained for some preschool settings? That's really important. And, yeah. you know, do you have that down? Um you know, so if you have some of these what I call prerequisite skills, you know, uh, then mm-hmm. can you can you bring that kid into the environment and then really push 
for those more advanced targets of, you know, social interactions with peers, whatever, you know, developmentally appropriate for, you know, three or four year old parallel play and interaction yeah. and, you know, small group learning and things like that. So I think breaking it down as behavior analysts do, that's, that's where we're really good about, okay, we're going to break it down. Here's our prerequisite skills. It looks like this is what the typical kid needs in order to, um, you know, be able to participate in this environment. Can we get my, you know, client in this environment and then really start to match up these goals with what's available in this environment? Um, and if you can, if you can do that, then I think you've really set yourself up for, you know, a, a nice, well-rounded program. But it does take some research on the front end to, you know, match up the environment with where your client yeah. is at in terms of, you know, what needs to happen next. I, you know, you brought up the small group learning, and I feel like that's the thing that I, I find missing. You know, I've, I've worked in some clinics, I've toured some clinics, and you see a lot of one-on-one therapy rooms. You see a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's not necessarily the DTT pullout from the early, you know, the early research that you were talking about. It's more of, it, it still may be play-based, but it's not group. It's not the bunch of kids working together. And, and it seems like that's the prerequisite that I feel like you, we, I see missing. And more importantly, these kids kind of like you leave a clinic and then you go to school and there's like, there hasn't been the prerequisite skill to even generalize to the school to say, hey, I can handle circle time. I can handle um, the the little group activity that you know every kindergarten classroom I've ever been in has. I mean, they all have their, their little desks and their little squares, and there's four kids, and it's like, okay, here's your crayons in the middle, and do this worksheet. Or, like that that seems to always be missing um, in on the tours I go at, or, or even some of the places I went at in my younger years. Right, and that's you know when we're um, and we're starting to see that you know we've developed this in some of our clinics, you know this um, school readiness program, these mock classrooms, mm-hmm. if you will, with the sole purpose being, you know, can you follow directions from afar? I mean, even the fact that you can give directions to a toddler from just standing a few feet away and not being there, you know, to provide some, you know, physical prompting right. and things like that, and to you know guide them and walk in line and things of that nature. I mean, those are some of the basic things that we start off with. These kind of transition skills, if you will, you know, giving directions from afar, being able to follow, you know, those directions. Again, developmentally appropriate. We're not expecting a, totally. a three-year-old, you know, to follow complex, uh, uh, you know, uh, models or anything like that. But um, and then, yeah, like you said, I mean, I've seen wonderful programs that, you know, you walk into someone's living room, and the kid's sitting on the carpet square. Why the heck are you sitting on the carpet square? Well, that's because you know, that's what three and four year olds are expected to do, find their, you know, square and find their place. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you really want to prep them and orient them to these different materials that they're going to be exposed to. And then, you know, again, this is where working in, you know, some different environments or with peers or with siblings really comes in handy. So if you have a, if you have a client who's in a daycare setting and they're, you know, you're prepping them to go to this preschool setting, that's when you pull in some of the peers and you say, you know, you start to work maybe with just two of them or maybe three of them on an appropriate game or maybe some, you know, like Simon says or things like that. I think that's where those real opportunities are where, you know, maybe some people just looking at that wouldn't recognize that those are some transitional skills that you're really working for that kid to gain so that they can be, um, 
you know, they can participate more fully in small groups. So, yeah, starting to train that distance between you and the child and then starting to starting by just adding another person in those games and in those uh, play skills, I think, is is one way to get at it. But but I think you're right. I think sometimes we miss that transitional piece of, you know, prepping the kids with those skills. And, you know, then all of a sudden you have a really um, frustrated, you know, four year old with autism trying to tolerate circle time. And it's just way too much. Um, So we've got to be really mindful and assess for those those skills um, before before we bring them into those environments. You know, but I like what, you know, the the idea of the, the carpet square. I mean, I, I laugh, and I'm laughing at a, something mm-hmm. that you, uh, you, you overheard on a recent call that I did from my home is, you know, the, the, <laughs> the carpet square. I mean, you, you, you've been on the phone where you've heard me, you know, giving instructions to my, to my three-year-old mm-hmm. who is, a, you know, she transitions to preschool in uh, one month and one day. September 11th is her first day of preschool, five days a week. We're, we're, we're all in. We're all set. And, like, there's a ton of stuff we're doing right now to prep. I mean, we're working on her following simple directions, as you said. We're working on making sure that the toilet routine is strong and, and that we have everything ready to go. There's basic um, rules around our, their school. Like, if you get up... You know, that, that they have a, a saying that at snack time, at lunchtime, if you get up, that shows us you're all done eating. So we are using that language in our home. Up, you know, you got up. That tells me you're all done with your breakfast. Is that is that the case? Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're starting to practice all of that. You know, it, it, it I think we forget. It's like. We, we do it with our typically developing kids just kind of instinctually. We just kind of like, you just kind of do it. Like, oh, okay, great. That's a great tip from, my, from the preschool to help me get them ready. Let me start doing that. Um, you know, there's, there's a role that we can play in these home programs to do the same things. It's not just small group practice as we were discussing in a clinic setting. Um, you know what? What are some of the things that you've seen? I mean, I know I just rattle off a bunch, a bunch of little stuff that I do, but you know, how can a home program support the same exact goals that we're talking about? Um, where you know, there, there's not a small group; it's just the parent, the kid, and maybe an ABA therapist. Right. Well, no, I think, um, and yes, having watched uh, your stellar performance as, uh, as uh, Father of the Year, if you will, I think you guys have done a tremendous job there, and, and kudos because uh, she seems to be doing absolutely wonderfully. Uh, not that well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to perform my best. <laughs> well, I'm trying to perform my best when I know you're on the on the phone, or, or I, even this morning when uh, when we're on uh, on our Zoom account together, and you can see what's going on. Yeah, excellent prompting. You were spot on. Very well done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but you know. Uh, you know, and parents, like you said, uh, parents of any child worry about this. You know, are you ready for school? Are you ready for the play yeah. dates? Are you ready for this community outing? But I think parents of, you know, children with autism have to beef up that preparation. Everything's just a little bit more magnified for parents working with, with kids with autism. And I think 
Um, you know, so then we have to pay close attention to some of those details that you were talking about. So if you've identified a good partnership mm -hmm. with a preschool or a daycare, you know, wherever you're going, um, you know, the other thing, too, is to have a good working relationship with um, with those professionals at that setting, you know, and sit down with them and talk to them about what's important for them, as well as your observations. Yeah. So, you know, you, you might be able to get, gain some insight from that teacher that your your child will be working with and, you know, really talk about your child's strengths and where the development is needed. But, you know, um, I would straight up ask, you know, what are, you, what are your expectations on the first day, the first week, the first month? Then also yeah. taking a look, you know, when you're sitting in there and watching what the kids are doing, where are the tables and the chairs? You know, how far do they have to be able to walk, you know, when given a direction, you know, okay, everybody go to center time, everybody go to the table. Is that three feet away? Is that across the hall? Do they Mm -hmm. to be lining up. Um, you know, what are the cues in the environment? Are there any picture schedules or, you know, things like that that would cue them into it? Um, you know, do they hang up their things upon entry? Just taking a look at these mini routines and then do like what you're doing at home. So, you know, when you come in from, you know, playing outside or from the park, um, maybe instead of, you know, uh, doing what moms and dads love to do, which is, you know, hurry up, take off the jacket, take off the shoes just because it's quicker if you do it as opposed to the child, maybe increase that independence and have them hang up their, you know, mm -hmm. on the hook. Maybe have them, you know, pour the juice into the cup or have them sit. Um, in a regular chair, you know, maybe you're still using some booster seats or something like that. So just making some of those modifications from um, what you've what you've observed in that classroom can make a huge difference and just really um, better prepare your child. Um, and again, for for our children with autism, that might include also some you know some more pictures around the house, maybe some different pictures, maybe some pictures around mm -hmm. you know this one means circle time, this one means story time, this one means cubby. You can start reviewing those things prior to that first day, along with you know uh, we have this uh, evidence based intervention of uh, social stories, um, and for those kids who really respond to social stories or even video modeling, I love the use of those of those tools, and you can take pictures of the classroom of the people um, and you know and prep them in that way as well. you know it's it's funny i'm as I was listening to you, I was kind of thinking about you know, our tours of, of the preschool. And, you know, we were really lucky that before you start the preschool, there was a bunch of different meetings and activities, and we, we got a chance to really get to know the, the preschool director. And what really surprised me and impressed me is the director of our preschool, the moment I told her what I did for a living, she's like, oh, I know exactly what you do. I know what a BCBA is. I um, actually tell some of my teachers to uh, pursue the field of ABA, um, who are younger and maybe looking for a career in this broader education therapy kind of structure. Um, and, and by no means do I think that's the norm of the preschool director, but I started to ask her kind of questions about like, hey, if a kid with autism um, wanted to come here, would would there be any restrictions? Would you be open to an ABA therapist coming in here? Um, what would that look like? And I was, you know, I was reminded of how, the, that point of scoping out your preschool and thinking about, you know, doing that research in advance, is this going to be a good fit? Um, how often the directors do know a little bit about ABA, and really a lot of them are very open to outsiders coming in, um, you know, and, and I should, probably the wrong term to say outsiders, but like outside <laughs> 
support, outside therapies. Like it's, I've been really impressed by that, um, particularly in the last couple of years, how collaborative so many of the preschools are um, and, and how easy it's actually to work with them, both you know, now that I'm entering as a parent as well as as a professional coming in there. Um, and I sometimes think people don't always think to ask those questions up front um, to say, hey, look, this is what I'm thinking, or if we need to do this, would you be open to it? Right. I mean, just like, you know, again, when we talk to families about finding the right agency, finding the right professionals, mm-hmm. it's just like looking for, you know, your pediatrician or whatnot. Is it a good fit? Do they understand you? Do you feel like the communication is strong? Do you have similar objectives? Yeah. And I think that's where partnerships really come into play. Like you said, even, you know, yeah, kids, parents of neurotypical kids, you want to have that connection with the school. But for parents of kids with autism, it's even more important because we might be asking a little bit more. Like like you said, bringing an outsider in, you know, teachers have a classroom set up. They have a way to, to yeah. work that environment. They're the professional in that environment. So we have to remain respectful of that. But you know, now with the, the prevalence of autism where it is, and I think the awareness, which has been phenomenal over the past decade, you know, autism sees no limits. And so, you know, we're in so many different classrooms and so many different environments. So when you find that, uh, you know, these directors are willing to work with you and you can sit down and say, hey, mm-hmm. you know, here are, some of the, here are some of the play skills that we're going to be working on. You know, we still need to do a little bit around this toileting schedule. When you find that mm-hmm. connection, it's um, it, it really is fantastic. And and you know that being said, if you if you don't find it, well, that's when you you know you continue your search because, like you said, I think more and more with awareness being raised and people understanding what autism is and evidence based practices to work with autism, um, people are people are a little bit more knowledgeable than they were maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's to benefit some of the you know some of our new parents who are just coming into this journey of autism and. Um, yeah, keep looking. So if you don't find that connection, you're going to find it somewhere because there are more and more people out there who, who are willing to work with you and, and open up their classrooms. You know, you know, I, as always, you and I, I, I love our conversations because we are not linear thinkers. We, we, we do bounce around. We cover such a broad area. Um, but, you know, on this topic, I kind of want to like sum up my takeaway and get your feedback on it because I'm still trying to conceptualize like my own, like that key summary that kind of presents like how do I view this? How do I view this kind of multi-site, you know, picking a site philosophy? But when, I, when I'm kind of thinking about everything we've just kind of covered for the last 30 minutes or so, it really kind of feels like you know, we talk about individualization. It's, I know this kid would benefit from X. It's, it almost sounds like the first step is to say, this is how many hours I think this child would need. My second step as a clinician is to really say, what environments do I have available to me that fit well? And, and use that to kind of narrow it down. So like to your point, Maybe there's, there's a school environment that's not a great environment for me, or maybe the kid doesn't need me there. Let me shift my 30 down to a clinic and a home because parents can be more involved and the clinic is a great environment. Or maybe, you know, the home is not a great environment because parents both work, 
but I've got a great preschool and I've got a great clinic. Let me capitalize on those environments and incorporate parents through some other means of training and meetings to kind of get it. But it almost seems like the, the step we need to do here is kind of layer in the what environments to have available to me, evaluate them, and then see how they line up with this child to make for the right balance of the 30 or the 40 or the 20 or whatever it is I'm recommending. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as we talk more and more about cultural and linguistic diversity and the diversity of families and you know, where families across the, the U.S. are, and if we're going to meet them where they're at, it might, you know, yeah, it might not be the family home. So is it a grandparent home? Right. Is it, uh, you know, a family, right. you know, family-run daycare or something like that? Um, so, so that's just it. Yeah, you sit down with the family and you say, you know, what are we talking about here? What does your family look like, and where do your kids need to be? Do they need to be in daycare, or, you know, what schools do we have around us or whatnot? So I think that's part of the assessment, um, thinking about, you know, what fits for them and and then working from there, like you said, then allocating, you know, what hours. You might want to take advantage mm-hmm. of the daycare because there are some peers there and you have some really good um, you know, your assessment indicates that you really need to work on some peer play. So then maybe you're going to focus some of those um, skills and, and that time, you know, maybe three or four hours in, in the daycare and making use of the peers. And then, you know, maybe you have some daily living skills or something like that, that when parents get home in the evenings, you're going to be working on some of those things. So I think to your point, that's exactly what needs to be done yeah. as part of the assessment. Here are the goals. Here's our assessment results. Here's the number of hours I'm recommending. And then how do we how do we map that on to our available environments and really capitalize yeah. on each one of those environments and what they have to offer and how to make our goals and objectives work in each one of those environments? Um, yeah, that's, I think that's a key piece, and I think you're right. We don't, we don't talk about that a lot, and, you know, some of our new clinicians – um, you know, they kind of struggle a little bit with, you know, trying to figure out where to put everything. But I think talking with the families more, um, you know, conceptualizing that evidence-based practice and family values and preferences and kind of where they're at is, is key to, you know, getting it right. Yeah. I think we, we do have a major takeaway here. I mean, this, to have this type of statement to go and say, okay, this is kind of summing this all up for us. Me, me as a clinician, as I said, like this helps solidify kind of a, in short, what I, what I think, and, and that you know, obviously I'm a very verbose person, has me hosting this show, but it's nice to be able to have that to the point. This is how I view this. So as I'm teaching someone new, as I'm working with a new family, hey, this is the way I view this, and, and I feel like we sometimes have a hard time doing that as a field of, of doing that. So it's nice that we have kind of these summations. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, from a family perspective, if you're a parent or someone listening, then you understand, you know, maybe this is a conversation you haven't had with your clinician. So, you know, here's the prompt to have that. And from the other side, if you are, you know, a behavior analyst and, uh, you know, you have some kids who are at this transitional age and you're working with new families, then here you go. This is, this is one place that you can kind of put some energy and make sure that you have these conversations with parents. So again, looking at well-rounded programs and supporting families throughout their journey with a child with autism. Um, This is again, one component, but we've highlighted a few things that you just kind of want to check 
check off and make sure that you've had these conversations, that you're feeling solid. Um, and, yeah. you know, if you haven't, then this is, this is the direction you need to be headed. So. Well, and like you said, I think at the very top of the show, it truly is the meeting the individual where they are. You know, this is where they are. These are the environments where they are. And now we're designing an intervention individualized to the needs of this individual, as well as to the environments where this individual lives their life. And, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't, you know, go tying it back to the research. I mean, hasn't that been what the research tells us? The more you can kind of do all of that, the better the generalization and the better the outcomes. Absolutely. Generalization is key. And it's, you know, generality is one of the seven defining characteristics of applied behavior analysis. So any behavior analyst listening, they understand what a huge component of that program is. So supporting families in the different environments can only play into your ultimate treatment goals, which is getting your client to be able to use the skills they've learned in all of these different environments. Um, So, yeah, I mean, just another reason uh, to uh, make use of what we have in terms of daycare and preschool and home settings yeah. um, and making sure that our families understand that it's important that, um, you know, applied behavior analytic strategies just become a part of life. Um, but, you know, it is absolutely supported by empirical studies. See, this is why I love having you on the show is you always point out all these critical research definitions key elements of ABA that, like, I always forget. Like, of course, we should tie it back to the seven different defining characteristics. But, you know, the day-to-day clinician forgets about all of that when they kind of, like, get back to the, is this the right direction to go in? And, And we tied it right back to the seven characteristics. Yes. This makes perfect sense. This is sound. Let's pursue that. And and you just have such a great way of always kind of grounding these uh, hypothetical situations or these very, like, you know, subjective uh, stories or narratives we talk about and getting it right back to that core. Is this in line with what the science says we should do? You know, I try my best, Rob, when talking with you. I prep for this kind of stuff, and I have the uh, luxury of been doing this for a long time, so there's some things are ingrained in that old brain here. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, and, you know, taking time out to do things like this, to, you know, to supplement your readings with, you know, blogs and with podcasts and things like that, it just helps us all remember, you know, why we're doing this and bring us yeah. back to the root of our science and our practice. So, um, yeah. We, we all need a little bit of a refresher here and there. So, Well, thank you again. It's just always great talking to you. Just really appreciate you always taking the time out to, uh, to be on the show and just kind of giving us this, this, other, this other end of the, the perspective and, and, and helping kind of clarify these different items. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Rob, and good luck on the first day of preschool. <laughs> well, I think we'll, hopefully we'll talk one more time before then. So. Good, so good. fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I may, I may need, Take I may care. need the moral support more than anything. Good, <laughs> we all do. Thanks so much. Well, thanks everybody for being here. Um, I just, I love getting into these conversations with Hannah. It's, 
you know, it's, it really becomes, I think, the glue that care, keeps all of our discussions going every month. You know, it's the having someone who can really talk to the research of what we're doing and, and putting some more context behind it. You know, why, why is my professional, why is my ABA provider recommending this? Well, here's the research to support it. Or, or what questions should I be asking my ABA provider? Or, or clinicians out there, what questions should I be asking the company I work for or am I interviewing with? Or I, I think all of this is critical. As, as I said, you know, I, I feel like we are so in the day-to-day. We're so in the how is this child doing? How, what do we need to do next? It, it's very easy to lose sight of. There is a study that this all grew out of. Um, you know, as we said at the top of the show, Tristram Smith did such groundbreaking research that we reference now today. Just having those little reminders of where did this come from? How do I use this? Um, it's just it's so valuable because uh, things just move so quickly and there's so much going on, it's, it's easy to lose sight of it. Hope you guys have a fabulous week, fabulous weekend, and we will talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by the Learn AST Provider Network. You can listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, and on Apple Podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.